Hey, hey, Dave, it's good to see you again. Like, you were just here. Dude, I was right? just in Ketchikan three days ago. Well, it's just you were so different, actually, in three dimensions, too. It's like I could reach out and I could see other aspects of you. I know. I probably was smaller and even <laughs> less hairier. <laughs> Actually, you didn't have glasses on maybe the whole time, did you? Oh, well, I got cataract surgery. I will never need glasses again. So That's amazing. Uh, I got wow, bionic science. eyes. Bionic eyes. And uh, I want to thank you for your uh, unbelievable hospitality and your barbecue. Oh, my goodness. We had barbecue. salmon one night. We had you fried up some uh, cod, or not cod, cod. but Link was cod. it cod? Link cod. Link cod. Link cod. Link yeah, cod. yeah, we had fish, fish and chips, mate. And yeah, it was just we great. did that. Out of the back deck. It was good to see you, Dave. We went walking in the forest. And I got a tour of your uh, studio. And I even interviewed oh, you, yeah. which we'll put on an episode. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you served us salmon on the barbecue grill. And I'd like to uh, have anybody who can tell us the Latin name for the fish. What kind of fish is it? We had sockeye salmon. Sockeye salmon. Any of you listeners can go online and tell us the Latin name of that fish. You could win a T-shirt. Oh, you didn't tell me about this. Well, I know a guy. I'm going to go tell a guy to, you know, yeah. I can so, wear a shirt. Uh, yeah, leave us a message on our Facebook page and you'll win a t-shirt. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, cool, man. I love the shirt you're wearing, man. <laughs> well, before we talk about our amazing uh, guest I'm so today, excited. I'm so excited about yeah, the guest. But before we get into it, um, yeah. you sent me a link about stromatolites. 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 Yes. So I want to talk about stromatolites for a bit. Because uh, this article you sent, stromatolites are some of the earliest living animals on the planet. They're, they're a colony of animals. They're cyanobacteria. They are 3.4 billion years old. That's and right. And colonies, they're layers of algae. And I thought we should study up on this a little bit before we talk to our guests, because it's relevant it, to it our guests It is relevant. Today. But I'd like to ask you, so these trillions and trillions of algae mats, or algae, is it algae or algae? Uh, I think it depends upon what part of the country you're from, <laughs> but uh, it's algae to me. So... Imagine thousands of square miles of these algae mats living for millions algae, Dave, and Dave, millions. Dave, you just said algae again. Algae mats living for <laughs> millions and millions and it's millions. It's algebra, and millions not algebra. Of... All right, okay. okay. You do the math and I'll say All right. algae. Okay, all right. Millions and millions and millions of years, they took in sunlight and what is their byproduct? They gave us oxygen. That's right. And they literally populated our atmosphere with enough oxygen. So that the next step could happen, man. The next step of life, more complex cellular life could grow and evolve. And it's pretty amazing when you think about that life begat life. Well, yeah, <laughs> one thing leads to another. But where did life come from, man? That's what I, how did it start? This wasn't like in a lagoon somewhere. This was right, the entire right. planet Earth. They turned it from a very, what was it, a carbon dioxide and methane rich atmosphere? I don't know about don't the know. very young okay. Earth, but basically, basically what they gave us, yeah. Yeah, they gave us atmospheric oxygen and they terraformed this planet. I mean, that's on and a planetary the, scale. Yeah, and the world was covered with stromatolites, right? I mean, there were these big mats of algae everywhere. Well, there's two factors here, and I don't really know. Either there was a hell of a lot of them, but they're... I think there were a hell of a lot of them. But 
for a very long time that they were, were oxygen wow. generating. And how long do you think that was? For half wow. a billion years? Well, I think they, they, call it, they call it the boring billions because <clears throat> not that much happened during those billions of years. But stromatolites today, there's only a couple places on the planet. One is off the coast of Western Australia. Which you and I and are going to visit next year. I am so looking forward to that. And our guest actually today has actually been out there taking school groups out there. And the other one is in the Bahamas, I believe. Oh, really? Oh, so really? let's go there too. Okay. <laughs> so I can see the living algal. Now you got me saying algal. Algal? Maybe it's algal. <laughs> I don't know. Algal mats. It does sound better, doesn't it? Algal mats. So. Okay. Let's talk about our guest. He's a keystone in the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover mission. So yeah, we are talking with Ken Williford today. And I got to say, you know, you're always wearing the NASA t-shirts. You're wearing one today, not a troll shirt. And I know that you are probably more of a space nerd than a paleo nerd. So Well, I wanted to be an astronaut. I was uh, 12 when uh, they landed on the moon in 69. I wanted to be an astronaut. And it was my grades that um, pretty much determined <laughs> I couldn't go... <laughs> should have done your math, man. I should have done my algebra. <laughs> <laughs> if you look behind me, all if you look at all our screenshots behind me is a scale model of the space shuttle, which I built and painted. I've been flying model airplanes. I was a pilot for 30 years in general aviation aircraft. So it, it's in my blood. Space and aviation is in my blood. Yeah, I mean, that's so cool is that, you know, I know that you're into that stuff and we're doing this Paleo Nerd Show and then... It occurred to me one day, like, wait a minute, they're actually looking for life on Mars. There must be a paleontologist on their staff. How cool is that? And then I went to Googling and I found Ken. Then I watched oh. the Nova show and there was Ken right. talking about fossils on Earth and then fossils on Mars, what they're right. looking for. And we, I sent him an email. I dropped my name. Also, we've got some. We've <laughs> Did he got know you? Had he heard of you? Well, we've had a previous guest on, and I mentioned our previous guest. He's actually worked with Peter Ward. Oh, right. So That's I right. mentioned Peter Ward's name. Good. Uh, and uh, he wrote right back. It was great. I was stunned. And But they literally living on Martian time. Yes, yes. The Mars day is, which is called a soul. A Mars a day soul. is 24 hours and 40 minutes. So it's 40 minutes longer than ours. And as I'm talking to you right now, because we're going to be talking to him in about 20 minutes, it is five. Oh, 07 in the evening. So, so wait a minute, the Martian day is longer than our day? Yes, by 40 minutes. By 40 minutes. So the thing is, because they live, it's... Do you know why they live on Mars time? I mean, if it's well, only 40 minutes, why do you think they live on Mars time? Because from what I understand, Dave, what happens when we shift our Earth time, that's no big deal. We can adapt to it. But with if you switch to Martian time, that 40 minutes then begins to add up and eventually Correct. you're not even waking up on Mars. They're trying to wake up when the Martian day starts, right? Correct. So. And that all has to do, and this is my theory, they have to charge their batteries every day. They have to be monitoring, you know, these this solar accretion. However, there is a plutonium reactor which is powering perseverance. Plutonium. Really? Did you know they launched that thing with a bunch of nuclear stuff in it without pretty much any fanfare? Because if that thing Ooh, had come wait, down, come down in a DL. suburb somewhere, yeah. Anyway, but we'll get we'll get Ken to maybe or maybe not uh, discuss that. But yeah, we'll ask him about his um, sleep schedule. Uh, another Mars mission specialist said uh, it's like uh, having a newborn. 
you uh, are woken up it in the is. middle of the night and you got to right. get used to it and and that's how it is so. yeah i wonder if they have a little place where they're all on mars time hanging out on mars time but yeah they literally <laughs> they have to go to sleep and um i want to ask him about his paleo background yeah. and then we'll get way deep into yeah what they're looking for on mars man this is so exciting dave i'm I really know, thrilled i know so let's give him a ring you know what i'd like to use my uh that space phone from the film 2001 a space odyssey the guy makes Dave. a video call yeah yeah so we'll okay. do that you've got right. that one yeah hey dave meet ken williford astrobiologist deputy project scientist for the nasa mars 2020 perseverance rover mission and director of the jet propulsion labs astrobio geochemistry laboratory Ken, really good to meet you here in cyberspace. And uh, that's my buddy Dave Strassman there wearing a NASA shirt. <laughs> yeah, well, I always wear NASA shirts, but Ken, congratulations on a very successful mission to date. And you and uh, all the team members must be over the moon or Mars, so to speak, with your current successes. Welcome. Indeed. Well, thanks a lot. It's great to virtually meet you all as well. And thanks for the kind words. We are all very excited. Well, nothing's really gone wrong so far. I mean, it's been an amazing um, mission to date. I'm waiting for the grand announcement that's going to happen on this show, right? Well, I, no, no, I'm going to ask about the grand announcement oh, okay. if it ever comes uh, later oh, on yeah. in the I thought we were going to do it today. But... We've been saving it up for you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, but yeah, I think things have gone remarkably well. Um, we're really impressed with how the team has come together and and it's taken a lot of hard work and uh, as always you know some luck and and a lot of skill and yeah it, it, things have have broken our way in a number of on a number of occasions so wow, yeah we cool. all are very yeah. fortunate to and be And I didn't know that the Perseverance rovers really grandfathered technology from the previous two rovers so you almost had you know a, a massive template that was proven that's right. Yeah, there are certain elements that have been shared to sort of the basic design or what you might even call the architecture of the rovers that that stretches back all the way through the whole lineage back to Sojourner, uh, the little, you know, demonstration on the Pathfinder mission. Uh, but in, in a much more important way, we are um, we share a lot of heritage, as we call it, with the Curiosity rover, the previous rover, um, and as much as possible used a build to print approach to to both take advantage of all that great design that went into Curiosity, uh, and also um, for efficiency, you know, to save right, time right. And, money was, and, and everything. Yeah, it was more efficient. But I think Dave, we like to usually start out with one very important, very question, important Dave. question. Very that important. Is, Ken, are you a paleo nerd? I could definitely be described as a paleo nerd. <laughs> yes, no question about it. Well, that's cool. I want to get a little, little bit into your background. Uh, I. You're not a you're living in Seattle right now, but uh, you did you start out as a dinosaur loving kid, and now you're a, you're a scientist for NASA. I did, yeah. I started out as a dinosaur loving kid for sure. Yeah. I was one of those kids. Uh, my daughter is turning out to be one of those dinosaur lovers, as a lot of them are. Uh, but yeah, I I actually attribute my original interest um, to. The, you know, the first time I snorkeled on a coral reef, that's sort of when it struck me um, to this desire to, with this desire to to really understand life more generally. And I think it was that motivation that had me fascinated by dinosaurs and then ultimately led me to, you know, focus on paleontology of the big things, like I think probably most of you all talk about and then move, uh, you know, more recently in my career to smaller and smaller 
organisms, the microbes, and so forth. Yeah, and then, I, I'm interested yeah. in that transition. That you you actually work with Peter Ward on uh, mass extinctions, and you went up to Haida Gwaii and you looked at the uh, Triassic Jurassic extinctions, and that leap that you took for paleontology suddenly to this new field of astrobiology. What what happened there? How did you start digging into it? You were looking at ancient life on Earth, and then it led you to this bigger question. Well, I must point out Haida Gwaii is an island south pretty much of Ketchikan and north of Vancouver Island, right? And uh, But is there a Triassic boundary? Is there a Triassic-Jurassic boundary that you can look there at? There is. Yeah, there's a beautifully exposed um, Triassic-Jurassic boundary section uh, at a place we call Kennecott Point. Uh, and then there's some... A bit older rocks uh, going down onto Frederick Island, which is, uh, you know, just adjacent to Kennecott Point, and you can study the Norian Ration boundary there in the the end of the Triassic. Are those ages Norian Ration? Yes. Yeah. From the uh, the Triassic. Right. Triassic, where it meets the Jurassic, and that's kind of a, a little known extinction, at least in the with the general public. What did you and uh, Dr. Ward figure out what's going on there at that. Yeah, well, it's funny. So it it has always been one of the the quote big five, the the sort of that I, I think mostly came out of Jack Sepkowski's work with the diversity curve through time in the Phanerozoic and these these five major mass extinctions at uh, roughly at period boundaries. It's always been in that group, but um, I know when I started out working on it back then in grad school pretty much every paper, you know, or it was so common to say, oh, the Triassic Jurassic is one of the least studied of the big five. And uh, a lot of that at the time we, we imagined had to do with the sea level situation and the, the balance between deposition and erosion and, uh, and maybe how most of the Triassic Jurassic boundary sequences were eroded um, uh, away. But we do have a number of really precious ones and more and more work has been done. It's hard for me to say it's less studied now. There are a lot of great people right, okay. doing a lot of great work on it. It's one thing, I mean, it, it it's interestingly sandwiched between the two most famous, I would say. And clearly the right. most famous is the the most recent, uh, if you don't count, you know, the current situation. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the, at, you know, when the dinosaurs went extinct and, and the ammonoids, but bracketed um, with the Permian Triassic, which is the largest, uh, the Triassic Jurassic sits right in between those two. You know, and I guess one other big, big major point I'd make about it that's interesting to me is that uh, kind of at the geology 101 level, when you first start to study plate tectonics, at least I did, I learned that you want to think about Pangaea forming, we think about it forming in an association with the Permian-Triassic right, boundary, right. In, in temporal association with that, and maybe connected to the mass extinction formation of a supercontinent for various ways. Pangaea really starts to authentically break apart or disintegrate around the Triassic-Jurassic boundary. And we start moving into this more modern um, distribution of continents. And so it's it's interesting to me. I don't know, you know, there's a connection. I can think of reasons why there would be a connection between formation and disintegration of supercontinents as something that, that may be difficult for animal life to cope with. I saw a recent animation of uh, the last billion years and the bits of Pangaea break apart and move across the globe. But what you're looking at is millions of 10.0 earthquakes. That doesn't happen like a, an amoeba crawls across. It's slower than that, but there must be cataclysmic events that create the breakup of an entire continent 
to to land in the positions the continents are in today. But did any papers come out of that Triassic-Jurassic uh, study on Haida Gwaii? Yes, uh, several, several have come out. So one um, kind of stimulated my own work on it was Peter had a paper in Science that was uh, a bulk organic carbon isotope record uh, across that section, right at the boundary, showing a, a major shift in the um, carbon isotope compositions of organic matter, and uh, starting to interpret that as maybe um, you know an effect of the mass extinction, or you know related to the cause or related to the effect, but related anyway to the mass extinction. And Is that the atmospheric composition. Yeah, well, that gets to a comment I was going to make about about your your comment about the 10.0 earthquakes. Certainly, yeah, I I think about the you know Pangaea starting to split up as associated with a lot of cataclysmic events. But then, sort of all those events conspire together to make a major change in the ocean atmosphere um, state. You know, whether I it's see. the the physical and chemical properties of both the ocean and the atmosphere, and then it's the biosphere that is, I think reacting to those changes and and sort of having to to adapt to a in some cases maybe a, a very new situation that perhaps then recovers to some other stable state but but it's very it's tightly associated with this change in the atmosphere which is what has always also made it very interesting to me in terms of um today's situation uh, right, and right. and what we may be getting ourselves into both the permian triassic and the triassic jurassic do not appear to be obviously associated with impact events like the end Cretaceous right, event right. does. Um, and instead, we'd say perhaps they were uh, caused by intrinsic as distinct from extrinsic uh, forces. The extrinsic forces of this an, planet. Uh, exactly. Yes. Our planet right. shifted on its own to a new state that was difficult in many ways for biology. And uh, yeah, so. Well, if anything, you know, that the idea that this the earth we're lucky to really be here the more i study paleontology I the deeper i get into it all the stuff our planet has been through and maybe in a way that kind of leads me to this there were two planets side by side once upon a time and life may or may not have occurred on both of them at the same time when did that idea start taking hold in your life and lead to your current career yeah, you're talking about the concept of panspermia and exchange I, I, between Earth and Mars, potentially. Yes. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, that's what I'm alluding to, and I yeah. guess that's that's the it's transpermia, which is well, which uh, what, planet, pan, which yeah, planet seeded who? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's one of the big questions, and, and this really gets to the heart of what we're uh, trying to do with Mars 2020 and and with Mars sample return. Beyond that, we are really, I think, for the first time since Viking very directly seeking evidence of extraterrestrial life with a major NASA mission. We've been doing it in, in a sense for quite some time with every Mars rover has been motivated to some degree by this search for life beyond Earth. But, but it's been this stepwise, careful approach to the problem following the water, uh, looking at habitability. And now uh, we're building on all that and saying we directly seek the evidence of, of life. But where we're very different from Viking is we are searching for evidence of very ancient life uh, or, or extinct life, uh, likely extinct life, but anyway, very ancient as to, as opposed to extant life, you know, the things that are recently uh, deceased or currently alive. That's not what 2020 or uh, Mars Sample Return are, are about in their current conception, but it's, it's about this idea that you 
you mentioned where uh, long, long ago, you know, between three and four billion years ago, Earth and Mars, we think may have been much more similar than they are today. And since then, they've taken these divergent paths where Earth has, has remained a very, very habitable, ubiquitously habitable planet. Mars, the surface of Mars, uh, as far as we can tell, it has become a, a very inhospitable place by contrast. And, and the atmosphere that we think Mars must have had, the thicker atmosphere to support abundant surface water, seems to have escaped uh, at some point during that, wow, that yeah. 3 billion years of history. So what's that about? Maybe Mars lost its magnetic field um, and, and several things. And we're, we're looking at this question broadly that we call planetary evolution, but we're going, so we want to understand how Mars evolved as a planetary system, but we're going back into the deepest reaches of Martian history to look at that time when Mars was apparently very habitable, more like Earth, uh, perhaps still less habitable in a sense than Earth, and we can talk about what that might even mean, but, but a time when, as you say, one of the possibilities that opens up is exchange of organisms between the two planetary wow. neighbors, wow. and, the, and the, then raises the question um, that we just heard, you know, did life originate on Mars or did life originate on Earth and, and exchange back and forth? And there are arguments that have been made, you know, on either side of that, but just very interesting questions. What I just learned is that uh, the geologic history of Mars is divided into four broad segments. Um, there are uh, periods, and I never knew this, but they're based on the rate of impact crater density. So yeah. obviously earlier in the formation of our solar system, there was a lot of these uh, impact bodies. And um, tell me, where is the Jezero crater in relation to the age of Mars? Yeah, well, great question. And indeed, the ages that we associate with really anything, any extraterrestrial body other than the moon, it, you know, these bodies in the solar system, we assign ages based on the frequency and size distribution, or call it the size frequency distribution of craters. And the way we calibrate that age relation is with the analyses that we've made of samples returned from the lunar surface, where we can calculate the, the size frequency distribution of craters and assign those to uh, absolute ages that we recover on Earth. So for Mars, it's been divided broadly into these uh, the Hadean, the Noachian, the Hesperian, and the Amazonian wow. in, in time order uh, from, from oldest to youngest there. Uh, we believe that Jezero is somewhere right around that Noachian-Hesperian boundary. Um, and it, it sits on the western edge of a much larger impact feature called Isidus, uh, and Isidus is is either you know right on that boundary or or perhaps you know before likely before that boundary Noachian. My yeah. notes say Noachian is four point one to three point seven billion years ago. Now, what was what was life on Earth doing at four point one billion years ago? Well, we we really don't know because we don't have any rocks uh, that are. That old, that old, uh, preserved okay. on Earth. Okay, that so we let's know get about. back to yeah. the first life on uh, the evidence on Earth. Well, before we jump into that, let me—I just want to clarify what you're talking about with the uh, the crater impacts that you're calculating. Let me help me out here because I'm more of a paleo nerd than a space nerd. Mm -hmm. But the way that you determine the age of different planets is you're looking at the craters, right? It's the the ages of the rocks that are exposed. But the 
Let me stop you just briefly okay. stop you. Okay. Yeah. So you, the way you said it was the way we determine the age of the different planets. I, you, maybe you're right. aware of this, but we think of the planets as all roughly the, right, right. Yeah, the ages of different surfaces on different, different planets. surfaces. All right. So yeah, I realize the solar system is all happens basically at the same time, but you have figured out by looking at the lunar surface craters that are there. Also, the asteroids, the comets that are hitting are also hitting other planets at the same, about roughly the same time. Is that what you're doing? That is one of the, the built-in assumptions. And there okay. are different models for how that, how that happened. And think, think of a lot of meteor storms a long right, time ago right, and right. not so many now. That's right, the basic right. thing. And then, okay, then you throw right, in that's... the slightly added complexity of two different models for how that actually that size distribution relates to age. Um, and then on, you know, and then also this idea of the late heavy bombardment, where it appears from our, our lunar data and these relations between size distribution and, and age, there appears to have been kind of a late stage pulse. So it wasn't just this monotonic decrease in uh, size distribution and frequency. There was a decrease, and then on that is superimposed this pulse. And we don't know that that happened, but it's a, it's built oh. into our model of, of you know solar system evolution that that may have happened. The nemesis star. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming again sometime. Yeah, but one of the potential causes is something like that. So you are a paleontologist by training academically, and you were looking at really ancient rocks. What are, and Dave was asking this too, let's get back into how do we know the oldest rocks on earth and what, what are they and where do we see life? Uh, but but most fossil? importantly, what do you extrapolate from looking at the oldest rocks on earth with life in them to the uh, evidence you hope to find uh, in the Mars 2020? Yeah. Well. Um... So getting to the oldest record of life on Earth, um, just give you my own uh, hopefully short version of how I think about it. <laughs> well, the okay, oldest, go. right. Well, well, so first of all, we have the age of the Earth as determined not from a piece of Earth, but from a meteorite, you know, the Canyon Diablo troilite. And that's what gives us the age of that formation of the solar system. At, you know, formation of significantly sized solid bodies in the solar system. Um, then we have the oldest oldest Earth material that's ever been dated uh, are, are little sand grains, zircon grains, zircon. from a rock called the Jack Hills Metaconglomerate. In Western Australia, right? In Western Australia, exactly. And, and the, the rock itself is about 3 billion years old, but it was formed in a stream bed uh, that was flowing down from some mountain or hillside. The rocks that made up that mountain or hillside were were 4.4 billion years old. And then those eroded into sand grains, flowed into a stream, maybe through multiple episodes of mountain formation and weathering and you know erosion and so forth. Uh, but in any case, the zircon crystals themselves formed in the solid earth, in the crust of the earth, 4.4 uh, billion years ago. Then were eroded out and uh, you know trapped in a rock three billion years ago. We dug them up, you know, and uh, in the broader sense, we um, <laughs> dug them up and and measured their age. Then, so we don't have any rocks that are that old. Then we have a couple places on Earth. One is in uh, a place called Nuwagatuk, 
in Canada. So sort of in the middle of the Canadian shield, this continental shield that's been uh, protected from or shielded from tectonic forces that have destroyed all the other rocks of that age. Um, we have a couple places on Earth where extremely old rocks are preserved, but they're highly metamorphosed, fairly highly metamorphosed. This is Nuagatuk and then a place in Greenland. Um, and then uh, it's not until 3.5 billion years ago that we start to uh, preserve a record that has not been uh, very significantly metamorphosed. And those records are best seen in uh, Western Australia, a place called the Pilbara, and in South Africa. And I've mostly worked in the Pilbara uh, on these rocks, but they're beautifully preserved. They, you know, famously, people look at them and you can kind of can't tell if it's a Cretaceous rock or a, but, you know, in, in fact, it's early Archean, so three and a half billion years old. Wow. And it's in these rocks, in the oldest, you know, sufficiently well-preserved sedimentary rocks that we have very clear evidence that life was present. We can all agree on that. Anyone who works on this subject can agree that there's very good evidence at 3.5 billion years ago in the form of stromatolites okay. that really wow. there's no, I would say, no real significant counterargument uh, about these 3.5 billion year old stromatolites um, in the dresser formation. And there are other examples, similar age. Uh, and then it gets really good in the Strelly Pool formation about 3.4 billion years ago. But we can all pretty much agree on that. Then there are a few pieces of evidence in older rocks at 3.7 to 3.8 to you know and higher in these more highly altered rocks. Those are all I would say controversial. You know, you'll find people who strongly believe them, people who strongly disbelieve them, uh, and then people in between. But all I can very confidently say is we have good evidence of these fossilized microbial mats at 3.5 billion years ago, which tells us that life almost certainly did not emerge on earth at, you know, 3.5 billion years ago, plus 24 hours. It was, you know, some significant uh, interval of time elapsed for what we would call prebiotic chemistry. Uh, some people don't like that term, but it basically the chemical, the chemistries that would eventually lead to the emergence of life uh, unfolding for some amount of time. And then some shift happened, you know, it's gotta be some fuzzy boundary where life emerged. We often use this term origin of life. Some people don't like that, partly because of the <laughs> panspermia idea. And, you know, uh -huh. where exactly is that bright line between prebiotic chemistry in quotes and biochemistry? That's a hard thing. And we don't, we don't have rocks that are sufficiently well-preserved, in my view, on Earth to really address that question geologically yet, as far as we know. But on Mars, we could get rocks like that. Even on the moon, fantastically, there could be earth rocks that are that old that have been preserved via meteorite impacts and exchange with the moon, but then not destroyed by plate tectonics. So, so ejecta from the earth. Ejecta hitting... from the earth, yeah, hitting the moon. These are sort of pre-stromatolite rocks that you're referring yeah. to. Maybe there's a possibility. No, question, wait, are stromatolites you carry? Yeah. I just wanted to ask, yeah. <laughs> were stromatolites, because we were talking about this before the before we talked to you, Ken, were stromatolites all over the planet? Were there just mats of the algae everywhere on the planet? Presumably. I mean, that's that's how I think about well, it. Well, they terraformed our planet. They gave us yeah, oxygen, absolutely right? Absolutely they did. Absolutely. Okay. Well, absolutely. As far as we can, you know, at least my own personal reading of the the geochemical record or the biogeochemical record. And this is really what I do more than 
classic paleontology. I, I'm more a geochemist, an organic geochemist, biogeochemist, if you like. I use okay. stable isotopes right. a lot. But but it's partly because I a lot of the rocks I work on were deposited long before there were ever, you know, uh, multicellular animals and plants like a, a lot of quote paleontologists work on. But anyway, these so the stromatolites are broadly distributed, at least in all the rocks that we have that are that old, and they're very few. They're very few on Earth. They're all they all have stromatolites in them. So as far as hmm. we know, oh. stromatolites appeared as soon as you know we're there as soon as we have rocks that are preserved well enough to have a clear stromatolite in it. Those rocks have clear stromatolites wow. in them, and all well, those rocks do. You're yeah. not really expecting to find stromatolites on Mars, are you? Well, um, that's a tough question, but the but I'll I'll put it a little bit. You'd be surprised. So if you yeah, let me ask if, you. No. Um I, I would be surprised in a sense, in a sense of like overjoyed right, yeah. surprise <laughs> and you know uh, exuberance. But um but yeah, I mean it on one hand, it's a needle in a haystack type problem. So we know where these good stromatolites are on Earth, because many geologists have gone year after year after year after year looking at these and looking for older and older rocks, and you know bringing back as much uh, many samples as they want, you know, back to the lab and looking at them with all the different techniques we have at our disposal. On Mars, even with all this great investment and all the great successes of the rover programs and and other programs, in a sense, we're scratching the surface, literally. It's a very so, narrow view of what you have. That's right. Yeah. With. And and so because because it's so much harder to make that field trip, you know, and so far humans can't even do it yet. So we, we have to send these robots. But this is a huge deal to be able to get samples back. It's our first ability to, to do that, which is a big part of it. And then the, the, the last piece I'll say is we went through a, about a five-year process open to any scientist on the planet who wanted to come and debate the merits of all the different places we could possibly land on Mars. And, and we ended up where we are at Jezero. And some pretty significant technical advances were made to even enable this, this spot. And so we're, if life existed at that time on Mars, there is good reason to believe that it's preserved in the rocks at Jezero Crater. And it just might be something like a stromatolite along that edge. It could be. Yeah, right if I had that. to predict what it would look like, I would predict would... a stromatolite. Okay, yeah. wow. wow. Okay. One of the instruments on the Perseverance rover is the SuperCam, which shoots a laser. It generates plasma, which then you analyze it using a spectroscopy instrument, right? So mm -hmm. you're actually able to see the chemical makeup of the vapor created from this laser I mean, it's so it's so futuristic and uh, Marvel's Avenger, but um, it could potentially detect organic matter. So walk me through how you would do that here on Earth, get samples, de define what is life, and then what are you looking for on Mars with this instrument? Yeah, so it's a, a big question. There's a lot there, but um, I'll say broadly speaking about the instruments on Mars 2020, the big theme I would say, you know, we're, we're we're driven, we're motivated by this um, need to seek evidence of life, right? It's it's not our job to find evidence of life because maybe it's not there, but but it is our job to very carefully and seriously look for that evidence. And, and the way we do that on Mars with 2020 is very similar uh, from the way we do it on Earth. And that's by looking in ancient rocks, uh, we look for the oldest rocks we can that are the best preserved uh, examples that we can find of those very old rocks. And then we look for 
lifelike shapes. Stromatolites are an example. Yeah, right. uh, and, and we look for lifelike compositions. We do, we run those searches in parallel to an extent, but really all in the interest of running them together simultaneously. So because the, the ideal thing we're looking for in terms of evidence for life is where lifelike uh, compositions occur in lifelike shapes. So where those things occur together. Um, and we can then ask the question, is there any so-called abiotic or non-biological process that could lead to this set of features being observed here by, by our instruments in this context? Can we think of any mechanism to form all of these things that we see that doesn't require biology? That's, that's sort of the harshest test of the null hypothesis for anything, any interesting thing we find. So squiggles in a rock, organic matter in a rock. Well, dendrites. Yeah, dendrites is an example. Yeah, they look like plants, but they're not. Yeah. Botryoidal mineral growth, so botryoid, like a bunch of grapes. Uh, so minerals that, that grow in those sorts of shapes. Um, you can form many things that look lifelike on one hand, but don't right. at all require life. Same thing with the chemistries. You can form organic matter. You know, planets themselves, independent of, of living organisms, can form organics of some complexity. So, you know, several different types of organic molecules, a spectrum of organic molecules. We know organic molecules form and change in space without, presumably, without um, biological activity. So no one thing is generally enough. You know, there are there are some shapes that can be observed in the rock record that that really go very, very far towards convincing us that they're biological. But but certainly, I would say almost certainly, but but really certainly, we will require not only information beyond the shapes themselves or the morphologies, we'll require there to be chemical evidence, probably multiple types of chemical evidence associated with those shapes. And then furthermore, to get those samples back and analyze them on Earth, I predict we would require all those things to, to come close to a any sort of real consensus scientific agreement that we have indeed found evidence of ancient life on Mars. The, the stakes are so high, the burden of proof is going to be a very it's going to be enormous, high as well. Yeah. So basically, if it looks like a fossil, right? That's what you're saying. If it looks mm -hmm. like the shape looks like a fossil, yep. you got the ripple marks. It looks like a stromatolite. You get super excited, or maybe there's the grape shapes, as you said. But then you've got to do. You have to have you the have evidence. Ability. Then you have no. But then you have the ability to do a, a chemical test. That's right. Basically, on it to see if it's got the compounds of life, and that's chnops. Is that? Well, yeah, that, that's one set of things we look for. So those but, are often called the biologically essential So you're able elements. to grind yeah. that rock and then see if it's got that. But then the ultimate proof is that you've got to get those okay, rocks. Okay, wait, Shinops is uh, what, Well, carbon? just one sec. Yeah. You've got to get those rocks back to Earth then before we get in the Well, show. we're going to get so, on to the Mars sample yeah, okay. return mission. Anyways, what is, what's, well, I can tell you what Shinops is in my understanding. Tell me, we Ray. Have a world, well, no, we have the world's, one of the world's experts here. What's Shinops? Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a drink that you often get in Switzerland <laughs> after skiing. Well, I, I'm yeah. wondering, have you guys? That's the joke that I've been waiting. I'm going to yeah. draw that. Has there been a schnapps schnapps yet? I've been milking it. No, but that that's a great corporate. I, I, uh, I will. Yeah, I will do that for there. you, man. I'm yeah. going to do a schnapps schnapps. Excellent. So. Okay.
Um, no, schnapps. It's C H N O P S. That's carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. All chemical elements that uh, all known life requires those elements in a very important, you know, way. They're they're sort of fundamental to biochemistry as we know it. And then, but that's that doesn't mean that those are the only elements um, that. Uh, that living organisms need or or build themselves from, but yeah. Well, alien was silicon based, so uh... right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, that that's this that's one whole concept: silicon based life or alternative uh, chemistries other than carbon based organic chemistry. But in terms of the biochemistry that we know of, there are those schnapps elements that are just so core to to life as we know it. Then there are many others that that are associated with life and required by many organisms and and so lots of them they happen to be in many cases the same as sorry the elements that make up the rock forming minerals so silicon magnesium iron you know uh, calcium uh, potassium all these are familiar uh, to people and and turns out when you do a chemical analysis of the surface of mars what are the elements that you find you find silicon oxygen magnesium iron, calcium, potassium, you know, all these rock forming uh, elements, then the question is, do you see these other things? And certainly we see plenty of sulfur around on Mars. There's oxygen is, is um, uh, one, you know, shared by both groups. Uh, we see phosphorus, hydrogen is all over the place. We, most of the rocks we see are hydrated. We think that's to some extent the you know, where did that atmosphere go? Well, you know, uh, when Mars had a thicker atmosphere, when there was abundant surface water, there would have been water in the atmosphere as well, just simply through exchange uh, and some kind of water cycle. Some of that water, a lot of it, maybe most of it escaped to space. Uh, some of it uh, was left uh, behind in the Martian wow. rocks. And and so we see that. Then carbon is is the big question. Carbon is That's there. one of the major things that right. led us to Jezero was the the observation from orbit that we have carbonate minerals preserved uh, in and around Jezero crater and in fact the region where Jezero is is kind of the the major hotspot on the planet for carbonate really? minerals and carbonates wow. do not require the presence of biology nor are they organic they're inorganic but they are often associated with biology so coral reefs are made of carbonate minerals seashells are made of carbonate minerals uh, and so forth and so Commonly, they're associated, but the key, whether or not Mars was ever inhabited, carbonate minerals get their carbon and oxygen uh, through this process of, of exchange at what we call the critical zone between the solid planet, the crystalline rock of the planet, uh, the atmosphere, the gaseous envelope, and then any water that's sitting in between. We call that interface the critical zone. Carbonate minerals form at that critical zone you know, through interaction of the atmosphere, water and and rock and they are preserved easily for billions of years and they lock in a record of those uh environments water yeah. becomes a precipitate for these carbonate materials these carbonate minerals these carbonate minerals precipitate in water in water okay yeah and um so if you were to obviously you'd have to take your sample back to earth and and study it on a secondary ion mass spectrometer, which is one of the things you use. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see tomorrow when th they shoot the super cam on a rock three meters away? What do you have a range of like uh, 22 meters or 11, no, 11 meters, something like that? It's far. 
Yeah, it would hurt of, you if you were standing yeah. up front. It would hurt you. Zap you. Yeah. 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 It would be totally unsafe. We don't put it on the dummy rover. Yeah. You get, you get an email and it says, Ken, we found this ion or isotope or carbon 13 and carbon 12. What would it be that, that you would like to see that would make you sit up in your chair? Yeah. If we saw, so the SuperCam um, has generally a range of about several meters. We try to look at targets within about five to seven meters, but SuperCam uses multiple techniques. One is the one we've discussed previously where a plasma is generated and a, and a spectrometer looks at the plasma. That's called LIBS, laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. SuperCam has another technique called um, uh, Raman. LIBS gives us elemental chemistry, like we were just talking about. Raman gives us information about the molecular the chemical bonds that are in there and the molecular composition. So that can tell us, is there organic matter there? But even if no organic matter, it can tell us what kind of minerals are present because minerals, you know, are made of these bonds between those elements in a particular crystal structure. And Raman tells us about that. So what would make me super excited is to say, hey, uh, Ken, we, we looked at this rock three meters away and it has uh, wrinkly layered domes in its structure and we find uh, hints of, of carbon-hydrogen bonds uh, and aromatic carbon bonds, sort of benzene rings uh, preserved in this rock from SuperCam Raman. That would all make me uh, very, very excited. <laughs> but, and part of that is so because- So the morphology first and then the chemicals. Well, both together, both together. So right. is the key. And, and so if we saw something like that with SuperCam, that is, if we saw evidence of organic matter with SuperCam, that would tell us that there's a lot of organic matter there because yes, SuperCam can detect organic matter, but our main tool for really for detection of organic matter on this mission is Sherlock, uh, just because Sherlock operates right above the surface of the rock. So a few centimeters away from the rock and uses a laser, same technique basically, but with a, an ultraviolet more laser precise. And scans it over the, it's more sensitive. Yeah. Is the key. And so, we can see, um, anyway, that instrument's just much more sensitive because it's not trying to, to see at a distance. So SuperCam, the big advantage, okay, it's not quite as sensitive, but we can see before we ever park at, a, uh, at an outcrop and we spend the time and energy to pull out the robotic arm and use our, our other instruments, Pixel and Sherlock, we can evaluate different outcrops from afar or different rocks from afar and make good choices on where to park the rover. So, uh, so SuperCam would be just astounding if we saw it in there. But anyway, even if we saw some kind of tantalizing hints with SuperCam, we would drive up to that rock, we would deploy the arm, we would take a, a beautiful picture with the Watson camera, part of the Sherlock instrument. Um, Sherlock and Watson, a yeah. Great color image uh, from a couple few centimeters away. Um, and then we would use the pixel instrument to generate a map across those textures of elemental composition. The textures are like the shapes in the rock, the wrinkly layers in the case of this a fantasy stromatolite we're right. describing pixel <laughs> might show right. us that the mineralogy on on you know alternating layers is a little bit different and that you know certain layers are enriched in some element relative to another and then we'd map the same area with sherlock and maybe we would find that those uh you know certain layers that are enriched in a particular element are also enriched in uh, organic matter in the form of these ch bonds and aromatic carbon and that would be just about the best situation we could imagine in terms of our ability, you know, a set of evidence that would say, wow, this is a very strong potential biosignature 
surely we would take a core of that rock and bring it back for, for future analysis on Earth. What I thought was so cool when Perseverance first landed and some of the images started coming back and you're looking around, there was actually, I think in the NASA page, uh, they were asking for people to, if you have ideas on where they should look, you know, for fossils. And I thought that was, I was looking around, there's a lot of juicy strata all over that, all over the crater there. It's incredible. You're five months in, there's gotta be some cool stuff so far that you've been finding. Oh yes, and it and it just keeps building and building. I mean, we have been. It may surprise some folks, but even you know, approaching six months after landing, we're still this this rover is so complex and capable that it takes us a long time, all these months, to check out and use each new capability for the first time. And the first time we do anything significant and new, we do it with extra special care, you know, with a little bit more looking over the plan and uh, and then looking over the results and seeing how it went. So we're still in that process um, that we expect to culminate really in an important sense with our first sample that uh, should come within the next month on plan. Uh, but there's a so much that leads up to that. So you're just finishing up the checkout stage and you're about to turn into the science. Well, sort well, of, we are- but yeah, so so that's the great news is that you know maybe we're operating a little more slowly because we're being more careful. But every new thing we check out, we do it on a science target. So it's not oh, just the engineers with free reign, kind of right. whatever the hell they you know we want to look at. It's it's uh, you know scientists and engineers working very close together. The engineers say, okay, the first time we do this, uh, we got to be extra careful. Maybe we can't get quite as close. The scientists say, all right, well this is the target that we want you to try to hit. And the engineers go, ah, right. that one's a little pokey. So we I move it slightly like, over there. Drive it's, over there. Oh Can't yeah, you see it's over all, there. that's, that's the, the, the whole thing. Yeah, the scientists are clamoring for more, more, I, more. The engineers are like, I can wow. imagine the debate. So you're actually <laughs> about to, you're about to do the drilling. You're about to do a core. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up on that. And we have done tons of work analyzing um, these rocks that we uh, variably call the the pavers or the the polygons. It's this polygonally fractured unit, uh, which we landed on uh, at the Octavia E. Butler uh, landing site, um, right on the border of a region we call Sitau. So we added that name uh, after landing because it was we were located in the Canyon de Chez quad of the, we happened to just land in that, the quad we had named Canyon de Chez uh, that a team member had mapped. So the, the team divided up the quads of the landing site and, and made geologic maps of each. And then there was this great effort to combine them all into one big map. We landed in that Canyon de Chez quad. So we started assigning names in the Navajo language, working with the Navajo people uh, for a list of names. Uh, and one of the names we applied to this region, Sita, and that means among the sands or amidst the sands. And it's this sort of mitten-shaped feature full of sand dunes that we can't really drive across because it's it's either too dangerous and impossible, or uh, even if there was a route, it would take so long uh, that it just wouldn't be practical. So we're gonna, we're skirting the boundary and we're doing um, driving a lot as we test out our autonomous navigation capabilities, a sort of self-driving car version of the Rover software. Um, we we can drive further and further each Sol and we make, make progress around that boundary. We've been seeing tons of great rocks. Now, didn't uh, the Ingenuity helicopter on its ninth flight actually become became an aerial scout and showed you that the Cedar Dunes were there and 
uh, added to the mission, and that's changing the path of uh, the rover. That's right. Well, yeah, it's it was this huge success by the Ingenuity team, and we we were fortunate uh, after the original technology demonstration of five flights for Ingenuity and kind of this very tight box they lived in. It went so well um, how that that original tech demo unfolded that that NASA requested an, an extended operations demonstration. So an ability for the the Ingenuity team and a very small team. Um, at the interface of the rover team and the helicopter team to try to plan flights that would have minimal impact on the the core rover mission so we we can't burden overly burden the rover team with uh can you drive there tweak this or that just have to kind of operate as a little autonomous team and fly the helicopter for a while kind of leapfrog along with the rover and then make this big giant leap across Sita. And it was, it was incredibly exciting. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to be on that little uh, interface team. And it's been one of the highlights of honestly, of my professional life. Flying sure. around Mars. It's just ingenuity. astounding. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. So Can we see fun. video of that flight yeah. from the, from ingenuity. Yeah. It's on the yes. website. Yeah. Okay. Wow. On the website. So, um, very important. Uh, have you been involved in the Mars sample return mission? And if you have, well, I'm sure you have been. But if you could explain, the I love robotics. I, I use it in my in my job. And the ACA, which is the adaptive caching assembly, it is like a Coke bottle plant. You make these cores and you stick them in these tubes. They're sealed and you're going to drop them and leave them <laughs> in various places on the surface of Mars for later pickup. That's right. Yeah. yeah and the document's have, been yeah. signed for that mission. That mission <laughs> will be happening. Explain. Can you give us a little. It's on the on Europeans that. to come through now, right? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a major partnership between NASA and the European Space Agency to get these follow-on missions done, to get those samples back. Uh, it's two different missions that'll be required. A lander that itself uh, will likely have a small rover associated with it called the Fetch rover, and it will also have a rocket uh, called the Mars Ascent Vehicle. And so it's the job of, of that mission to be on the surface, uh, go get our samples off the off the ground and or have um, Perseverance deliver samples to the lander, maybe some combination, and uh, and then get them into the top of that rocket, launch them into Mars orbit in a container called the orbiting sample, the Oz, or at least it, it has been called that for some time. And then uh, where it meets, rendezvous with another mission, uh, the orbiter, the sample return orbiter that flies to Mars. And they, both missions get to Mars around the same time the orbiter is there for the whole sequence to uh, help observe the landing of the lander and do communications relay for that landed mission, and then to monitor the launch of the orbiting sample such that the, the orbiter can then rendezvous with the sample, capture it. The sample is now a collection of, of uh, our tubes that we collected with Mars 2020, something like 30 titanium tubes. Um, rendezvous with that, capture it, and then fly back to Earth uh, and land, you know, somewhere in the in Utah, perhaps, uh, and then get get picked up, uh, brought to some facility, evaluated for Earth safety, uh, and then eventually um, 
we get to work on them. And Ray, yeah. they're, they're, they're taking applications now to study these tubes if you want to put yours in. <laughs> I think <laughs> nano nerds should put in an application uh, together. No, let's leave it to the energy, big boys, but, actually. But, but uh, Kim, we're talking that's a decade away. That's a lot of patience, right? Something like that. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot the, you're, you're describing there. That's right. The earliest opportunity um, to launch would be 2026. Um, there's a follow-on opportunity in 2028. Um, and uh, the 26th opportunity would have the samples back in 2031. Um, sure. So maybe I want know, to advance around, that man. by two years, uh, maybe for a 2028 launch. Well, let me ask this. Um, I am very anxious. You know, I would like, love to live long enough for the samples to come back. But what <laughs> What happened to the water and the atmosphere on Mars? What are the theories? Why did it all, what's a lesson that we, is there a lesson we can learn from what happened to Mars? Where did it all go, man? Where, if there was yeah, life uh, it's and one lakes? Of the big, nobody one of the knows. Big questions. Did somebody pull the plug and all yeah. the water drained away? Or where's the water? Well, um, we, it's a safe bet to say that a lot of it escaped to space. Um, and the remainder, you know, reacted with the crust, reacted with the rocks on the surface of Mars. Uh, you know, tiny, tiny wispy traces are left in the atmosphere. Uh, but the Martian atmosphere is about 1% of uh, the Earth's atmospheric density. And Mars' atmosphere is mostly made of carbon dioxide. How does water go to space? I, I don't. Well, uh, it just floats to the top of the atmosphere and evaporates right off the top, just like That's your. Just it. your... Wow cup of tea in the morning, you know, okay. um, the cup with the water inside is Mars and its ocean or, or Mars and its rivers and lakes. And then the steam rising off the top is yeah. Mars's atmosphere and it floats away. So the way I think about it anyway, um, and there are people who devote their, their whole careers to studying, you know, this sort of, uh, and modeling this unfolding process of how a planet in the most broadest sense uh, evolves over time. But, but Mars is much smaller than Earth, um, the the thing that ultimately drives um, the evolution of a planet, the 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 dynamics of a planet, the internal dynamics of a planet, that in turn, you know, on Earth drive plate tectonics. So the, it's the molten core is exactly molten core, and why molten? Well, to some extent, it's the just a lot of rock pressing in on itself, but to um, from another point of view, it's radioactive decay. So the, how, what's the engine that provides the heat for the, the, the internal dynamics of the planet to continue and to, to evolve over time? It's the decay of radioactive elements ultimately inside the, the rocks of the planet. And in this sense, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to think of like chunks of plutonium or chunks of, you know, uh, of uranium ore or something. It's just there's radioactive elements distributed through through all the rocks that make up the planet, uh, even on the surface, and they're decaying all the time. And so when you have a larger chunk of rock, you have more of that you know, radioactive elemental fuel to continue to drive that heat engine inside a planet. Well, then, as you said, it keeps the core molten, and it's the spinning uh, of the of those uh, the core and the you know against the mantle it's etc creates the magnetic fields which creates the magnetic field we call that the planetary dynamo so this is just our model our broad model of how a, a planet works like this that generates a magnetic field all the time the sun which is providing all this valuable you know light energy to the planet it's also providing 
um, at no extra charge, a solar wind, <laughs> you know, and 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 then beyond the sun, other stars and the galaxy, broadly speaking, is providing cosmic radiation. That's and we're just bathing in this all the time. All the planets are. The closer you are to the sun, the the more you're, you know, more quickly you're bathed in the solar wind. But in any case, the magnetic field interacts with with the solar wind and with some extent cosmic radiation. And you can imagine if you've seen a picture of magnetic field lines around the planet, it kind of looks like an apple surrounding the planet. You know, it pinches in at the core at the the poles, and then it moves out outside the the equator. And it's outside of the atmosphere. These field lines are outside the atmosphere. So to some extent, they protect the parts of the atmosphere from that being hammered by the solar wind and, and, and potentially ablated by the solar wind. They do, on the other hand, concentrate all that stuff at the pole. So it's not so simple as the magnetic field just simply protects the atmosphere. But that interaction certainly does, um, we think, potentially um, serve serve some protective source. So wait, are you saying Mars is dead? Dead and cold? Well, yeah, so you're helping me get to the point a lot more quickly, <laughs> um, which is that Mars is smaller, Earth is bigger, Earth is still a living planet, Mars is potentially, in a sense, a geologically uh -huh. dead planet, at least relatively speaking. Um, and, and so for some time in its, say, its first billion years of evolution, Mars did have that heat engine. It had the dynamo. It was where do we get our atmosphere? We get it from below, from degassing of all those all rocks right. inside the planet. The gas comes out of the volcanoes. You build up the atmosphere from below. You're constantly stripping it off from the top, both through that ablation process of the solar wind, but also just through escape to space. And as water, as an example, floats to the top of the atmosphere, one thing that happens is photo dissociation. So some of that radiation at the top of the atmosphere can split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen is lighter, moves faster, and more readily escapes from the top oh. of the atmosphere than the oxygen. So on both planets, we think there was probably an irreversible, we would call secular or just long-term and irreversible oxidation of surface environments. So you're constantly putting in new reducing material from the bottom now we're getting maybe a little technical in the chemistry but i'm just talking about oxidation reduction chemistry which is what drives rusting right. so with rust you start out with a reduced material that's the opposite of an oxidized material a reduced material like iron metallic iron you expose it to oxygen which oxidizes it and turns it into this oxidized material rust the same thing broadly speaking happens to the surfaces of both planets as the hydrogen preferentially escapes the oxygen, in a sense, builds up oh. relative to the hydrogen. The hydrogen is a reductant, the oxygen is an oxidant, and the surface gets irreversibly oxidized very slowly. Ah, that's why Mars is red. Yeah, so <laughs> if there's not a force actively counteracting that irreversible oxidation, the planet sort of becomes rusted. You get this rusted yep. crust on the surface. Really? Earth, wow. Earth is constantly replenishing itself but we see that about two and a half billion years ago, um, there was, we reached this tipping point in this irreversible oxidation state. Before that point, the, the process I was describing was happening, but, but there was so much reducing power on the surface of the earth that it didn't just rust all to bits um, and the oxygen couldn't really build up. So at the as that was happening, biology was, was evolving and photosynthesis had evolved some time before photosynthetic organisms were splitting water in the ocean 
and building up oxygen in the atmosphere, but every molecule instantly reacted with a re reductant and uh, rusted out into the ocean floor. That I think you just blew my mind there. Did I go too far? <laughs> well, no, well, no, no, but, but it's, but, no, no, it's good. No, it's wow. All that stuff, okay. all that rust built up in the surface ocean wow. at the time and piled up in the bottom of the ocean about two and a half billion years ago in what we call banded iron formations. And that's in Western that's Australia. We, exactly. That's and the Pilbara. That's where we get all the iron for the steel that makes our cars and everything else is from that, that process. At some point, we hit a tipping point and oxygen could start to build up because the planet's ability to reduce was outstripped. And so that's the great oxidation event on Earth. What you, what you said was basically, if I've taken the message away, is that life saved our planet. Well, in a sense, the organisms at that time didn't think of it as saving they thought of it as a huge hassle. Well, I know, but I mean, in the big scheme of things. It opened the way for big organisms like us, certainly. Well, but yeah. it also preserved our planet from becoming, it's becoming Mars-like. Be becoming Mars-like. Well, Is in, that what you're in saying? some you're... sense, so life, oxygenic photosynthetic life tends to keep the planet healthy for, for organisms like us. Large, macroscopic, multicellular organisms the only way you can get big like that is to use oxygen, to use a metabolism like we have, uh, aerobic respiration. But most of the diversity of life uses other metabolisms. So, right. so the vast uh, majority of the diversity of life on Earth is in the microbial realm, and any possible chemical reaction that can be used to run a, a little cell is probably being used somewhere by some little organism. So to organisms like that that don't require oxygen, and in fact, many organisms can't tolerate any oxygen, oxygen is a real nuisance, and it tends to kill them off. And we know from our own bodies, we talk about free radicals. Those are little free oxygen atoms floating around, destroying our, our cellular material. So before organisms could effectively use oxygen like we do, we had to develop enzymes to protect ourselves from those uh, oxidation processes that would otherwise work to destroy us. So to those organisms, it was a real bummer, but but it paved the way for <laughs> evolution of of the kind of life that that can get smart and send rockets to other planets. Have, have you or NASA or JPL rehearsed the announcement? Yeah, I'm wondering no, about that. We we have not. <laughs> yeah. Come on, I mean, do you remember in uh, the movie Contact? Uh, they they yeah. It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do we tell them? Well, no, there basically was that um, they had a clip of Bill Clinton, president at the time. It was totally unrelated, but he said, we we need the facts with blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. seriously, there. Ha I mean, there was it was it wasn't actually unrelated. That was a news conference. I mean, in a sense, it was oh, about uh, the Mars. Directly. You're right. Yeah, about it was Mars about Beater. Alan Hills and, and Clinton announcing likely possible evidence of uh of ancient Martian life. It just like that is how yeah. I would imagine it would unfold. It's going to unfold in the scientific literature yeah. and in, you know, press conferences and, and it'll be the media that makes the circus. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's trying to hide evidence of, of Martian stromatolites. Quite the, quite the opposite. Yeah. Wasn't we're, there we're, some yeah. controversy about Viking actually detecting there life? Is, yeah. It, it continues. I would say it's a, a simmering controversy. It's a, um, but, but, um, Without Generally the evidence. speaking, the, the broad consensus is that Viking did not show evidence for Martian life, but there are some scientists who believe, who interpret the evidence differently. Um, generally speaking, the broad scientific consensus is that 
its uh, abiotic chemical processes that led to, in that case, the, the oxidation, just as we were talking about, right. the oxidation of reduced organic matter that was brought to Mars as, as food for potential organisms to potentially get metabolized and releasing uh, isotopically labeled CO2, uh, just, you know, like little, um, uh, anyway, little yeah. organisms might yeah. on the surface, chewing on that, breathing it out in a way that we could detect it. So our instruments, the, the Viking instruments did detect the, the uh, release of those labeled gases, but, you know, in further, further study uh, showed different mechanisms by which the Martian environment itself could just oxidize reduce species like yeah. that and and cause a result and well, it so could that have been seems a, simpler to i would say most scientists yeah. as an interpretation could have been yeah. a fingernail clipping left in the clean room <laughs> <laughs> well yeah Ray. so but surely uh if you do have uh you spot as termatolite there's got to be some strategy to uh announce the the discovery of such a thing are pictures posted daily from or, or how often can we see uh images from perseverance yeah, they, the images, this is one of the great things about um, NASA missions, in my view. Um, the images from our cameras go directly up to the website. The raw images yeah. are there for people to view as instantly as they can be, basically. So early in the mission, we make sure for each instrument, kind of one at a time, we make sure that that, that pipeline is flowing correctly. Uh, but once once we verify that it's all the systems are hooked up correctly, we just turn it on and we let the images flow and it's fantastic. So and there are over 75,000. Oh yeah. I really encourage, it can feel overwhelming, but, but your listeners, uh, other paleo nerds out there, um, I can tell you that some of the most exciting images ever taken by, you know, any kind of human effort are being just sort of fire hosed out to the internet every day. So it's worth going and it. taking I a love, look. It's really spectacular I, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mars. I love the Ray, do you want to ask so, your question and we can wrap it up? We have two last questions. To, uh, to two last up. questions. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking, we asked this of all our guests, you know, what uh, time period, if you could time travel back, only going back, what uh, what epic epoch, what uh, spectacular age would you like to go back to and what would you want to see? But I'm what also planet? wondering- You can say also I'm what also, planet. I'm, I'm also wondering where in the universe you might want to go. Uh, so I can, I'll throw that in there too. Oh man, that is, there are so many ways to answer that question. The, um, the first thought that occurred to me was, you know, something like 4 billion years ago on earth. Of course, I'd need to bring a spacesuit but if I could have all the equipment I would need to survive, I would love to go back to that time. Um, that would be have to be my first choice. Uh, and then, you know, from there I'd go see? to the Great Oxidation event. I'd like to oh, okay. go, I'd like to see, um, I would sort of program the, the time machine to land, to uh, take me back to some piece of land. So <laughs> pretty much anywhere, any, any piece of land poking out from the oceans, uh, as long as it's not molten rock, put me down on some, some cool uh, rock on the shore of a of the largest body of water you can find, and let me take a look. That would be my ultimate destination. Huh, cool. Let well, me, you know, you Ray, know, I, my, my thing was I want to see that first cell go from inorganic to organic matter. That's well, what I want that, to see. That's what he's always been asking that one. But, hey, I'm just, before Dave asked his big wrap-up question, uh, you said that you had a moment as a kid uh, 
you know, snorkeling and looking at a coral reef. And I was just thinking back about that. What what was significant about that? Why was that a kind of turning point for you? Oh, well, I can't say why. I can just say that it was. Uh, and it's just one of these early memories. I don't know what it's like for you all, but I, I have a sort of like a few, a few slides, you know, it's like the slide projector <laughs> is mostly empty. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like a few in there and I can flip to those, but I don't know what happened in between. And one of those early slides is the moment that I went in, I jumped in off the side of a boat with a snorkel and mask on into, it was either in Hawaii or the Philippines. We went on the same trip. My family did. Um, and, but anyway, the first time I dropped in on top of a shallow coral reef uh, and I looked down and the, and I saw, I was just like overwhelmed by the diversity of shapes and colors. And, and I knew that it was all alive. And I, I just wanted so powerfully and immediately and profoundly to kind of connect with it and, and understand it. It being not like any one fish or any one coral, or any, the whole damn thing. Well, you know, it was like you were looking at, you were looking at another world. And uh, yeah. here you are looking at yes. another world, totally. and probably one of the most exciting scientific adventures ever, man. So, yeah, woo. yeah, awesome, yeah. awesome. Okay, so I'm going to uh, read part of this because I do my research, <clears throat> but um, <laughs> I don't know when this will uh, air, probably a few months from when we recorded it. But this past weekend, Richard Branson and three other Virgin Galactic employees successfully completed a suborbital flight in his Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, and this was highly publicized first for space tourism, but critics called it more of a publicity stunt because the same achievement was made by Alan Shepard 60 years ago. Now, granted, Branson's flight was a worthy prize, but the same day, I saw memes on the internet that questioned why a billionaire would spend all that money to go into space instead of feeding the hungry. Now, as a space nerd and space enthusiast all my life, I understand the priceless technologies that spin off directly from our investment in space exploration. I get it. But my question is, what do you, Ken, what do you say to those people who don't understand the benefits we are reaping, the advances in science that help us here on the ground, on Earth, through space exploration from both manned and unmanned missions since the launch of Sputnik, the year I was born in 1957? Well, yeah, it's a great and classic and complex question, but I would say um, the you already gave the answer. You know, we get <laughs> these um, all these in many ways unpredictable technology uh, benefits from work in space. You can think of work in space as doing some of the hardest stuff that humans can possibly do. So, as groups of humans gather together to try to achieve the impossible, you can bet that uh, some great ideas will spin off of whatever that endeavor is, you know, and that is certainly the case with uh, space programs, both government and commercial. And so that's the practical side, but from, call it uh, the emotional side, maybe, um, I personally have absolutely zero compunction. First of all, um, you know, it's Branson's own business, but something tells me that he does a good bit of work uh, enabling um humans around the world to to have better lives i don't know but my bet is that that he's a um relatively generous chap but who knows in any case i am 100 for that effort and similar efforts to open up um space travel 
more broadly. And of course, inevitably, it's one of the hardest things we can do. Again, it's going to be limited to the, the most refined, you know, uh, elite people selected by the largest, most powerful governments on the planet. Um, space travel is limited to those folks. And then it broadens somewhat. Right now, it's, it's opening to uh, civilians who have enormous resources, you know, <laughs> longer and longer time will go by. And through these efforts, inevitably, uh, it will progress to where more and more people are able to do something that I really hope I get to do sometime uh, before I kick the bucket. And that is to look at Earth with my own eyes from orbit. But to get human eyes and, and human feet standing on another uh, planet and to come back to Earth and tell the story, uh, I'm all for that. So the, the sooner we can do that, uh, however we can achieve that, um, the better, because that's a that's a big adventure that I think we just need to take together. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Sure. Wow. Uh, I I really, my mind has been blown here. It's, it's such an honor to have you here with us, Ken. Thank you so much. Uh, so exciting for us to, the paleoneers to nerd out with you. And thank you. It's a fun show. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Great. Well, it was a it was a real treat to to meet you all and great conversation. Great questions. Wow. And uh, and a real um, pleasure uh, to be able to connect with your listeners. So hello, everybody out there and, and get in touch if you have questions. Cool. See ya. See ya. Well, that was really, really out of this world. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, it was it was mind blowing. I I yeah. So cool. We just had the, the guy who's looking for life on Mars. I know. You know, I'm on the show. Wow, how exciting. But I think what I, I found in digging into and researching for this episode is the fact that there is so much planning that goes into so many aspects of landing a robot on another planet. For example, did you know there's a thermal team? What? A thermal team. The it's temperature team? Yeah, exactly. It's an entire team that not only... Uh, pre-launch makes sure that things can withstand the the incredible temperature swings of the Martian night and the Martian day, but also throughout the mission, they have to make sure things don't heat up or, or cool down. And uh, that's just one of so many teams and aspects. Of... Well, no, I was just kind of realizing as he was telling us that like the engineers think one thing and then there's the astrobiologist, another thing. And you know, I'm just wondering how they settle all that. He's in Seattle. They must have a lot of Zoom meetings, but sure. You know, drive over there. No, this is, but you can't do that. We're going to run well, out. Of, you know, he has a boss. He has a boss named Ken Foley, and Ken Foley is the director of the mission. And so Ken is co-deputy with another person who I forgot, and they pretty much sometimes are told what to do, but most of the time it's a collaboration on. You know what? We would like to drive there. Well, what are the impact on the rover? Well, there's sand. We don't want to go in the sand. Well, let's go around it. Yeah, and they actually got the ingenuity, yeah. the ingenuity helicopter to rise up in the air and scout out and go, hey, we don't want to go in these sand dudes, which is absolutely amazing. So that you could, well, you can watch that whole film, huh? Of the ingenuity flying yeah. around. It's it's very it's kind of uh, splotchy. It's it's not like a smooth. But you know, you're talking really? about. Uh, images ditched together from millions of miles away. Now, I also wanted to remember how he said they landed in the Canyon de Chez quadrant, and he was yeah. using Navajo words to name certain features on Mars. They take the entire 
landing area, which is, I don't know, I'll just guess it's uh, 10 miles by 10 miles. And they break it into a grid of, of quadrants that are 1.5 kilometers by 1.5 kilometers. Then they name each of these as a national park over the world. Each quadrant is, that was the theme oh, that really? uh, JPL decided and NASA decided, let's name these quadrants for a national park around the world. So whenever they drive or get into these quadrants, they use influences from those national parks to name the features they find on Mars in those quadrants. So uh, the Perseverance lander landed in the Canyon de Chez, which as we know is a national park in Arizona, which has Anasazi ruins, Beautiful, that huge canyon undercut oh, with see. the Anasazi okay. ruins. Oh, I so, was wondering why they're using Navajo names. So they decided to use Duh. Navajo names to name those uh, features in that quadrant. Oh, wow. I was wondering, maybe they could, you know, some of the other quadrants, like, do dinosaur names. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you see, let's go over to the Ankylosaurus, Parasaurolophus today. No, Diplodocus. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is a national park theme. I think... The next mission, Ray, where we send your ashes into space, <laughs> we're, we're going to name uh, your landing spot. Uh, but here's one for you. Now, why well, isn't the moon? Names. Yeah. Why well, isn't the moon red? Uh, it's because it's white when we look up in the sky. But Mars is red. Why is the moon not red? Yeah. Well, why, well, why is Mars red? He just said it. Oxidi oxid yeah, oxidization. Yeah. yeah. The moon never had an atmosphere. All right, duh. There you go. Okay. All right. There you go. And I got another question for you. And and Ray, if you answer this, you could win a T-shirt from me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any more T-shirts, man. I'm a T-shirt king. Hey, good show as always, David. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, one of our most well, they're all fascinating, man. But uh, uh, Ken Wolford was mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And uh, if you like what you hear and you want any suggestions of guests or topics, please email us at paleoenergy.com or give us a comment on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We read them all, all the messages, all the, all the... You know, speaking of which, I got a great uh, letter sent to me, the, the actual letter sent from a seven-year-old listener. Yeah, it's we put it on, uh, on uh -huh. Facebook and it is just, it just warms the cockles of your heart, doesn't uh, it, Ray? And you know, it's good to know that we are an all-ages show, man. Yeah, and that a seven-year-old loved it so much they took the time to write, and that, yep. that's what's brilliant. Yep. And you know what they said? They said you were so, so funny, Dave. Well, so I have one fan. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's that's what it's all about. Yeah. All right, man, well, good show as always, and all we'll right. uh, catch you on the flip side, dude. Yep, I'm signing off from Ojai, California, where the Oak Chaparral meets the Blue Mountains of the California Dry Valleys. And I'm here in the eternally damp rainforest, uh, the Tongass Rainforest in Ketchikan, Alaska. Signing off, it's Raymond Patrol over now, man. See ya. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs>